Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to finish up tonight the experiment that Solomon conducted on life to see what pleasure could offer him regarding ongoing satisfaction. As you're turning there, it's, it's common knowledge to everyone that the number one best-selling book of all time is, drumroll, what? The Bible, you're right. You would all be right. I wonder if you know what number two is, the second best-selling book of all time. Let me give you a little background behind that book. In 1951, after a day of game shooting, I like these guys, in Ireland, Sir Hugh Beaver and his hunting party became involved in an argument as to whether the golden plover was Europe's fastest bird. Beaver could not find the answer in any reference books, and he debated with several people on whether it was the fastest or not for three years. Then he looked for a, around for a second time and found that there was no reference book that was readily available to answer that question and similar questions. So Beaver concluded that there must be numerous arguments going on nightly in many pubs and inns throughout the British Isles about what was the best and biggest and fastest. Sir Hugh contacted Norris Ross... Norris and Ross uh, McWhorter, who ran a research agency. He decided, after talking with them, that he would help them write a new reference book which would help answer such questions that they had the argument over three years about whether that was the fastest bird in Europe. These brothers soon accepted, and in 1955, the Guinness Book of World Records appeared, which is the second best-selling book of all time. As you might have guessed, it is a book that almost everyone has reference to. And I remember when I was in the little book clubs in elementary school, we would, I would always buy that year's edition of the Guinness Book of World Records. It wasn't long before the book expanded beyond the natural records and began to include fantastic feats. Many have tried to get in the book. Some have died trying to get into the Guinness Book of World Records. Even more have made amazing fools of themselves. For example, got this right out of Guinness. Apple peeling. There is a world record for apple peeling. The longest single unbroken apple peel on record measures... 172 feet and four inches. It was peeled by Kathy Waffler of Walcott, New York. I feel like I have to say her name after that. In 11 hours and 30 minutes. You gotta wonder what that apple looked like toward the end. Balancing on one foot. Amresh Kumar Ya. By the way, you'll notice a lot of these examples I'm gonna give you are from India. And because... In India, the Guinness Book of World Records is, is on par with any sacred writing. To be in that book is a life's goal. Well, this gentleman, Amrish, balanced on one foot for 71 hours and 40 minutes in Bihar, India from September 13th to September 16th in 1995. By the way, in this activity, the free foot may not be rested on the standing foot nor may any object be used for support or balance. They said that in the standing. The longest period on record for anyone who has continuously stood is for more than 17 years. That's the case of Swami 
Mahajari, Mahajara, some other word. 1955 to 1973 in India. 1955 to 1973. By the way, he died at kissing. Alfred Wolfram of New Brighton, uh, uh, Minnesota, kissed 10,504 people in eight hours at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival on August 19th, 1995. (laughs) I wish you could see your faces right now. (laughs) The longest engagement. Some of you should listen to me. (laughs) The longest engagement was between Octavio Gillian and Adriana Martinez. They took the plunge after 67 years in Mexico City. They were 82 years old when they got married. Tree sitting. The duration for staying in a tree (laughs) is more than 25 years. In India, Indonesia rather, and I love this, it's by a guy named Bunkus. No last name given. I guess you don't need one if you're in a tree for 25 years. Um, he was in a palm tree in the Indian, Indonesian village of Benkes in 1970. And um, he was there for 25 years. Last one, longest fingernails. I actually saw this one on television. Longest fingernails. As of March in 1997, there was a documentary on this gentleman. The aggregate measurement of the fingernails of uh, Shridhar uh, Chilal of Pune uh, in, uh, in India was, Pune, India, was 20 feet 1 inch for the five nails on his left hand, 4 feet 7 inches on his index finger, 3 foot 10 inches on his middle finger, ring finger was 4 foot 1 inch, pinky was 4 feet long, the fingernails. It actually deformed his, uh, his, the bone structure in his hand and uh, said it would never recover from that even if he clipped them. I don't think you can clip them. I think you saw them at that point. Um, now, why, why do that? I'm not trying to be trivial or, 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 or trite. The Guinness Book of World Records both reveals and feeds a propensity that's in each of us. It's a propensity, propensity to be the best at something, to achieve something, to have accomplishments, to win at something. It's the thrill of competition that really resides in all of us. I'm going to admit something right now. I probably need marital counseling, but my wife and I are brutally competitive even with each other. You put us around a game, uh, a board game, and it's, um, it's um, interesting. Don't say I don't like to sit around. This is why I don't like playing board games. We're going to have some marital counseling right now with all of you. You can help us out there. I remember when I was uh, first trying to date Kim, we, uh, we decided to play a little one-on-one basketball. That was not my best decision. <laughs> you don't know what happened. <laughs> I just remember her hip checking me at one point, and I went flying about 10 feet and thought, I like this girl. <laughs> We've been taught that winning isn't everything, winning is the only thing. 
I was reading in the Guinness book, and I won't go into all of this, but there's, there's a record for barrels over Niagara. That like com- combines every fear I have, drowning, falling, claustrophobia, every possible fear you can have is, I mean, who wants to set any record for going over Niagara Falls in a barrel? One of my heroes when I was young was Evil Knievel. He was going to jump over everything. There's climbing mountains. There's extreme games now. Uh, my sons and I were watching um, in New Zealand a competition for some guys on, on uh, 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 what was it, John? They were um, uh, bicycles, and they were doing these freestyle flips and stuff in the air that looked illegal. Everyone wants to be good at something, and if you haven't found something you're good at, you invent something so you can be best at it. This is nothing new. Ecclesiastes 2 records Solomon testing the pleasures of the world to see what in the world he could accomplish, what could feed into his life from the pleasures that he had access to that would give him happiness, that would give him satisfaction, that would bring him meaning and significance. As we've titled this series, he was looking for life in all the wrong places. The book begins with the phrase, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It will end the same way. Everything is vanity. Esteem off a cup of coffee. It's a fleeting nature of the world. Pleasure is there for a moment and then it's gone. He decides to use his wisdom to test with an experiment the pleasures of the world rather than using his wisdom for what 1 Kings 3 and 4 said it should have been used for, which was to rule the people well and to discern right from wrong. So he tries, fun, we looked at that, didn't bring satisfaction. Getting drunk, intoxication, didn't bring satisfaction. Materialism, getting all he wanted, didn't bring satisfaction. Sexual pleasures, didn't bring him satisfaction. One commentator said, Solomon creates a little world within a multiform, harmonious, exquisite Secular Garden of Eden, full of civilized and uncivilized delights with no forbidden fruits or none that he regards as such, end quote. What we dial into tonight is his last experiment and then his assessment of all the experiments. Look at verse 9. Ecclesiastes 2, 9. Solomon says, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, guess what? All was vanity. Striving after the wind. And there was no prophet under the sun. These verses are a straightforward, no punches held evaluation of his experiment. Let's work through these. And as we do, I want to give you a little outline. Then we're going to have some practical application toward the end. His four final findings about satisfaction. Solomon's four final findings about satisfaction. The first is in verse 9. There's nothing you, nothing you can uh, be... Uh, nothing, let me read it. There's nothing you can be to be satisfied. 
Nothing you can be to be satisfied. Now what I mean by be is being the best. Look at verse nine. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Now that's an interesting statement because there were only two people who preceded him in Jerusalem. Dad, who was David, and the first king of Israel, Saul. So what he's doing, you should find, uh, know exactly what he's saying. He's saying, Saul, great, not as great as me. Dad, greater than Saul, but not, not as great as me. I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. He's talking about the other kings. Now, Solomon was, was, no, um, was no stranger to pride. He was very familiar with pride. He was uh, not the most humble man who ever lived. And for good reason, actually. Remember what happened back in 1 Kings chapter 10? The queen of Sheba comes to visit him. Let me just read that for you. The queen of Sheba said to King Solomon, It was a true report when I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. You are wiser and richer and greater than by two times what I thought. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are, those, are your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. It's going to be tough to maintain humility when you're hearing that from the queen of Sheba. 1 Kings 10, 23. Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. He accumulated more than anyone else did. He was smarter and wiser than any other king on the planet. Even though this text tells us, verse 9, that his wisdom stood by him, pleasure and affluence and being the best brought him nothing that lasted. No one who's ever gotten their name in the Guinness Book of World Records went home that night and said, I'm done with life. Everything is accomplished. There's nothing else I want to do to gain significance. There's nothing you can be to be satisfied. It's talking about competition and acclamation and achievement. You know, we titled tonight, Looking for Life in Competition. I think the better title is Looking for Life in Achievement. Just being the top of your game. Um, everyone's competitive. Everyone wants to be better than someone else. Even those of you who say, no, not me. Look, I, uh, I used to teach a junior high Bible class. And I even saw precious little 13-year-old girls who after I would give a test would get their, their, um, their tests back and here's how the pride went. What, what did you make? When someone says, what did you make? They, they don't care what you made. They want you to ask what? What did you make? Oh, you made it 80, not me, 95. Oh, I'm sorry, is that proud? They, they wouldn't say that. You want to be the best. Look, I, I have to admit, competition, and that is a, it is a serious, and I mean this, it's a serious, sinful, proud issue in my own life. I don't like to be passed on the freeway. 
Like, what, you think you can beat? I mean, it's, that's terrible. <laughs> I hope I don't show up in jail one day. Our pastor is down at the county jail for going 90 when he got passed on 435. I just hate being beaten at anything. And it's pure pride. It's just pure pride. Solomon had a reason to be pretty exalted about himself. But you don't have to do an end zone dance. You don't have to spike the ball. We get it. You're the greatest. You don't have to just tell us all that. Number two, a second final finding about satisfaction. There's nothing you can get to be satisfied. There's nothing you can be to be satisfied. He's rehearsing what he learned in the experiment on materialism. But he says also there's nothing you can get to be satisfied. Look at the first part of verse 10. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Just park on that for a moment. As we noted early in the study, Solomon had unlimited wealth. He was the richest man on the planet. He had unhindered power. Can you imagine having all the money and all the power and all the resources to get anything you wanted? No matter how wealthy you are, and by biblical standards, we're all rich. Matthew 6 says if you have more than one thing to wear and you know where you're going to sleep tonight and tomorrow night and you know where your next meal is coming from, you're wealthy according to biblical standards. Even though everyone can say, well, they're more wealthy than me, they're richer than me, and I, I get, you're all very well to do in biblical terms. Having said that, is there anyone who is brave enough to come up after the sermon tonight and say, you know what, there's really nothing else I could ever want in my whole life? Nothing else I want. I'm kind of wanted out. There's, no one ever gets to that point. I mean, we accumulate stuff and then we want, uh, we want accessories for our stuff and it just never ever ends. Solomon found out there's nothing that you can get to be satisfied. Everything you ever get will bring you a measure of enjoyment and satisfaction. And that's okay. That's absolutely okay. God has designed us to enjoy the blessings of this world. But it's when we place meaning and significance to try to get satisfaction out of those things instead of him where the problem comes. Nothing you can get to be satisfied. Now remember, long term, it will satisfy you in the moment. If someone wanted to donate to me a, a Ferrari tonight, it would make me satisfied tonight. But it wouldn't long term because then I'd want a better garage to put it in and a better house to be out of the garage. And a better, it just dominoes after that. Number three. This is in the middle of verse 10 the first, through verse 11. There's nothing you can do to be satisfied. He said, I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. Just, just think about that. Can you imagine being able to say, there's nothing else I want to get. I got it all. There's nothing else I want to do. I've done it all. No place in the world I want to visit. I've been there, done that. He could literally say, been there, done that, owned that. He didn't withhold anything from his heart, any pleasure. This is mind-numbing. There's nothing he said no to himself about that he wanted. He says, for my heart was pleased 
because of all my labor, and this was my reward for my labor. I made investments, I got returns, I, 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 I was a good king, I had this wealth, so I spent it and it was okay. And there's nothing actually on the level wrong with that. But as we'll see at the end of the verse, it didn't bring him satisfaction. It wasn't meaningful. Solomon learned, we'll learn later in the book, that it is truly more satisfying to give than to receive something. He exercised no restraint, no self-denial in his pursuit of meaning and pleasure. There was joy. His heart was pleased in his toil, but it didn't last. Now, before you go trying to reduplicate Solomon's experiment, please note something Solomon himself should have remembered. His experiment is at odds with Numbers 15:39. Listen to what that says. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you play the harlot. So in Numbers chapter 15, Moses says to go after everything you want is going to place you in trouble. The issue of harlotry here, he's talking about spiritual idolatry, spiritual harlotry, where you're substituting satisfaction with spiritually a prostitute rather than God himself. It's graphic language. Psalm 131 verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult or too marvelous for me. In other words, I've learned not to go all out on everything. I have held something back. Look down in verse 11. Thus, I considered all my activities. What activities? The getting and the getting and the getting the being and the being and the being, the best, the best, the best. I looked at my experiment. Everything I wanted, I got. Everything I wanted to do, I did. I considered all my activities in the first 10 verses, which my hands had done and the work, the labor, which I had exerted. And as we've said over and over, when you see the word behold in the Old Testament, that's a euphemism for, and guess what? Think about this. Behold. Guess what? All was futility. It was vanity. And then he gives it an illustration. Striving after the wind and there was no profit under the sun. Even though Solomon discovered that there was reward for his efforts, the ultimate objects of his search, profit and meaning were lacking. He worked hard at his pursuit of pleasures, but there was no last there were no lasting results from his labors beyond the immediate gratification. Solomon is not a killjoy, he's a realist. It was fleeting vanity. It doesn't mean that it didn't bring some level of satisfaction and, and, and enjoyment. It was fleeting. It didn't last. It was temporal. This must be applied as the conclusion to his experiment with fun, alcohol, getting drunk, materialism, entertainment, music. Sex, and now competition. Now with that, can, can we just step back for a moment from that and look at some dangerous features of Solomon's competitive heart? 
I want to dial in on this because I think there's some, some uh, implications that will serve us all. When you look at Solomon's conclusion, especially as it's attached to this last experiment, we, we see a few things. Let me give you some dangerous features of competition. Just a little list. First, competition is born of pride. You see that over and over in 1 Kings 10. It's born of pride. He began to read his own headlines and believe them. Focused on self, focused on winning. It's an attempt to exalt yourself for something. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. I had, I mean, I... I don't even mean this to come across as any sense prideful, but I was in high school and junior high and college. I, I had a, a decent athletic career. I got medals and certificates and stuff. I don't even know where it is right now. I think it's, I think it's in my, I hope it's in my brother's house, but I don't even know where that stuff is now. It's just gone. It, I don't even know where it is. But it was prideful in the moment. It meant a lot in the moment. Is the focus on self and winning. It's okay to be the best you can be. It's okay to honor the Lord what you've been given. Praise God, work hard, do it well. But if it's in reference to someone else that you're competing against, there's a problem. That's what Solomon started here. I was better than all who preceded me in Jerusalem, which were the two kings. Here's a second dangerous feature. Competition has to compare. By its very nature, competition compares you with someone else. Solomon's view of himself was in reference to these other two kings. Now, a little footnote on that. Not all competition is wrong. I love sports. I love watching sports. There's nothing wrong with competing to win. And please, please, try not to be a part of the soccer league where everyone gets a trophy. That's not competition. It's, it's not a good thing. It's not... Biblical, as we'll see in a moment. We'll come back to that. Competition also can undermine love. It's awfully difficult to, to love those who you're trying to beat. A fourth competition feeds lust. By lust, I mean strong desire. Look at all that Solomon was pursuing. All of those that fed into his getting more, achieving more, wanting more, being better. Fifth, competition confuses priorities. It confuses our finances, our times, our friendships. I'm often asked by athletes how to exercise biblical virtues while competing. It's not impossible, but it is tough to love somebody as a linebacker when that fullback's coming at you. A fullback's coming at you. Excuse me, I, can we just share some verses together? That's not the moment for that. And lastly, six, competition cannot deliver what it promises, which is absolute satisfaction. Now, that doesn't mean, I have to say this, that it's not good to enjoy competition and sports. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for a moment. I want to introduce you to someone that you know very well, who you may not know was really into sports. The Apostle Paul. He actually uses sports, at least two sports in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9 as excellent examples competitively of principles that should be applied to our life without, get this, without throwing the competition that these sports imbibed out the window. 
In fact, had he done that, the illustration would have totally broken down. Verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? He's saying, look, you don't have uh, slackers out there. Everyone who's racing, he's probably talking about the, the, the Corinthian games or even the Athens games. Those who run, they want to win. But only one receives the prize. That's why I'm not into the soccer programs and the football programs where everybody gets a trophy and a pat on the head. There needs to be a loser. It teaches you character. It's missionary training. Run in such a way that you may win. Don't you love that about Paul? He was a competitor. He said, don't wimp out. If you're gonna run, if you're gonna get in the race, you run to win. Why? Because that's what runners do. That is a very good quality that you need to bring into your Christian life. Competition isn't bad if it's only, if it's, if it's looked at as a game and you win, then you go to dinner and you forget about it. You don't put your significance on it. He goes on. Everyone who competes, there's his word, in the games exercises self-control in all things. It's a great, interesting insight into Paul's view of athletics. He exonerates, he, he glorifies, he, he speaks kindly of all that goes into an athlete's training and regiment. Self-control, things you do that you have to do to, to get in shape and to, and, and to be a good runner here. Things that you don't do, things that you don't eat, things that you do to buffet your body and to, to be in self-control. Then he gives the illustration, they do this to receive a perishable wreath. When you won a game in the ancient uh, world, they gave you a garland. It was a green wreath of, of leaves they would put on your head. It was, it was a moment of pride, but it didn't last so long. Once the, tr- the vine was trimmed from the ground, it had no life, so it would die. And that's what he says. It perishes. However, take the principle and bring it over to the spiritual side, that competitive principle, and you can earn a wreath that's imperishable, a crown of glory, Therefore, the personalization, I run in such a way not, as not without aim. Then he gives another sport. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Beating the air is not the, probably the best way to translate that Greek phrase. It's I box in such a way not to swing and miss. And uh, the bob and weave is what you learn if you're a boxer so that you can duck out of the way and you can force someone to swing and miss. He says, I'm going to train in such a way that when I swing, I connect. He doesn't say, well, you know, boxing is such a violent sport and we shouldn't allow our children to be in contact sports. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I like what what they're doing. I'm going to apply that principle to my own spiritual life. I'm not going to swing and miss. But I... Discipline. It's a really interesting Greek word. It means I actually injure my body. I bruise my body to make it my slave. That's what an athlete does. An athlete will push to the point of muscle fatigue and muscle breakdown to then take on protein and build that muscle back up. That's what getting in shape looks like. I, bu- I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. I buffet my body. I discipline my body. I, 
I understand. So what Paul is saying is there is a good side of competition. Solomon said the bad side of competition is where you're competing for prideful purposes and you're, you're competing only to beat someone else. You know, there's certain things in, in modern athletics that I really love, certain things that I don't. I, I, I like after a hockey game, and hockey's a violent sport, that the guys skate around, they shake each other's hand. There's something really redemptive about that. The game's over, good game, let's move on. I think Paul would be pleased with that kind of attitude. When you're on the field, you compete, and you compete to win. But you don't take it so seriously that you wrap your whole life around it. Had a um, life-changing moment at Black Mountain, North Carolina. I was at an FCA camp, Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp, um, during high school, and um, they would have uh, college athletes who would come and um, uh, be, they called them huddle leaders, team leaders, you know, the, uh, little, little small group leaders at the camp. And I was, um, I was a wrestler, so I, I wasn't a very good basketball player. In fact, they didn't like wrestlers to play basketball because all we knew how to do was foul. Um, and uh, I, I didn't like basketball very much because I was, well, can I tell you why I started wrestling? Because I was in seventh grade and not being a man of great stature in the seventh grade, uh, I went out for basketball and my, uh, my coach came over and put his arm around me and said, you know, Ricky, I, have you ever thought about wrestling? You'll get to get, deal with somebody your size. And I didn't know he was insulting me, but it turned out okay for me. Anyway, I never played basketball much and it was pretty bad. I'm still pretty bad. My, my wife can hip check me off the court, as I told you. We were at this um, FCA camp and there was, we had a, 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 a college basketball player from, I think he was from... Uh, 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 Maryland, who was our leader. He was, he was a college basketball player, really good basketball player. One of the sports we had to com- uh, compete in that day was three-on-three basketball. And so you had to, everyone had to play a certain amount of minutes to, to make it a, a qualifying game. And so he was playing. There was another guy, and it was me. We were on the court at the same time. And we were... Uh, uh, we're winning, okay, and then he started passing the ball to me, and I started shooting. That was a really bad idea, and I, I was terrible. I mean, I, I'm still pretty bad, and so I kept passing it back to him, and he passed it back to me. He stopped shooting. We lost the game. This is a fellowship of Christian athlete camp. And yet my sanctification was not doing well. And so I went up to him. His name was Chip. And I said, Chip, what? what? You could have won that game by yourself. What? What were you thinking? He says, Rick, it's just a game. I wanted you to play. I get to play basketball all the time. I wanted you to play. And just, just totally dismissed it. I laid in bed that night thinking about that how much that basketball game had meant to me in the moment, all for wrong reasons, and how little it meant to him for all the right reasons. Listen, competition can be a good friend if you take the principles and apply them to your own spiritual life. That's what Paul says here. I looked at boxing, I looked at running. I'm gonna take the discipline principles and the winning principles and apply them to my sanctification with the Lord. But if you use competition as only a means of proud and prideful pursuit with the people around you, as Solomon did, in the end, he says, it's chasing after wind. 
Ever seen anybody grab the wind, put it in a bottle? I found the wind, I've chased the wind, and I've captured it. Look, the point is you can't do that. It's impossible. It's striving after the wind. Which ends us with his experiment at the very end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. What makes preaching Ecclesiastes tough is this one sermon, and it's one sermon with a conclusion. And it's intended to go from chapter one all the way to the end so you get the full conclusion. So periodically, we're gonna need to sneak in a peek ahead and see where Solomon lands the plane here. He says, the conclusion, verse 13, when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring to judgment, bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. It all comes back to how does your pursuit, how does your chasing after pleasure look underneath the careful gaze of a righteous judge who is God? Here's the truth. Verse 14, the last verse of the book. You and I are in a lot of trouble for. If God brings every act of judgment, you and I could never stand. Psalm 130, if, if you would count our sins against us, oh Lord, who could stand? We could not stand in 14 unless Jesus stood instead of us taking our judgment and for us in giving us his righteousness. Everything moves back to the gospel in Ecclesiastes. Very few books highlight our need for the gospel more than what Solomon does in his pursuit of anything and everything except God. And his conclusion was pursuing anything and everything except for God was futility, chasing after wind, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Are you looking for life in all the wrong places? Are you placing weight on the pleasures of this world that you, from your experience and from the experience of others, you know is not gonna, it's not gonna bear the weight of your satisfaction? Yeah, you keep doing it. Maybe if I buy this, I'll be happy. Maybe if I go there, I'll be happy. Maybe if I date him or her, I'll be happy. Maybe if I, maybe if I, maybe if I, then I'll be happy. You can do that and you'll learn the hard way or you can listen to Solomon who said, I, I did that and it didn't work out so well. Go to the end and then come back to the beginning. Fear God, keep his commandments, know that you're safe in judgment because of his son through the gospel and enjoy life as a gift without taking it so seriously. Enjoy the pleasure of this world as a gift without taking them so seriously. In reference to tonight, enjoy competing. Win the game. Be a good sport after you do. Lose the game and be a good sport after you lose. And then go get a glass of orange juice and go to bed and get up tomorrow. It's not that big a deal. Solomon's accomplishments didn't bring him what he hoped they would. Being the best, he got to the top, looked around, and it was pretty lonely up there. Be careful chasing after that same wind.
Lord, we ask for your wisdom in our own lives as we understand the wisdom of Solomon. Give us the wisdom and grace, the mercy to understand and learn from his experiments with pleasure so that we don't have to commit the same mistakes. So teach us through your word and his example. In Jesus' name, amen.